And we'll pick up where we left off three weeks ago in just a bit. Here are a few things that are coming up. They're in your program, so I just encourage you to keep your eye on the calendar with the stuff that's happening. This afternoon at 2.30 is our quarterly congregational meeting. We'll go over our uh, third quarter financial report. We'll go over a proposed budget for 2014, some things uh, related to our building project. So those of you that are members, I encourage you to be here for our family meeting this afternoon at at 2.30. And then uh, next Sunday, men, uh, is the first of our Leadership Institute uh, sessions. And there's a big paragraph about this in your bulletin, so uh, take a look at that. But it is to train guys for leadership in positions within the church. And that includes uh, a deacon. It's required that you, you take this in order to be considered to be a deacon at our church. Taking it doesn't mean you have to be a deacon, doesn't mean you will be, uh, but uh, the training will, will help you for other positions within the church. But it is something that is a prerequisite for being considered to be a deacon. But that's next Sunday evening, 6 o'clock, and we have a manual of material that we go through. Those manuals are $40, and if you don't have the money for that, that's okay. Just register, and then we can figure that out later. But uh, a number of you have already signed up. If you haven't, today's the last day for you to register. So do that at the Information Center before you go. And uh, men, if you have any questions about that, see me about it, okay? And then on the uh, 10th of this month, Tuesday the 10th, is the ladies' Christmas uh, Advent. It'll be in this room. And uh, the ladies need to know who all is coming, so register at the Information Center for that. And also, uh, they need ladies to volunteer to take a table and, and decorate a table. Uh, so if you're interested in doing that, also uh, let them know at the Information Center. And then on the 15th, Sunday night the 15th, uh, three weeks from tonight, is our annual Adult Christmas Fellowship. That will, that will be here, and we have a white elephant gift exchange for that. We always have a, a good time with it. Uh, so that also is explained in your bulletin as to what we're asking you to bring. January 5th and January 12th, we will not meet at this location because... Uh, there's going to be some renovation stuff being done on this side of the auditorium uh, for those two Sundays. So we're being kicked out to the Westfield Center by the Trenton Library for the 5th and the 12th. And we're just having one service that day at 10.30. I think it's 10.30. Uh, no Sunday school, just a worship service, one hour, one hour and 15 minutes. And uh, then we'll be done on those two Sundays, okay? So that's the, the stuff that's coming up. Thank you all for praying while we were gone to, while I was gone to China. I'm very, very glad I was able to go there. A bit long. Uh, normally, I've gone, this is the fourth time. Uh, it's usually been eight days or so. This was like 13. Uh, so that, I'm glad to be back. Very glad to be back, but very glad I could go. And the, the men there were, were wonderful. I'll tell you some more about it uh, next week. But always adventures when you go overseas. And um, my, on my way back, uh, I had to fly from Yanji to Beijing and then hang out at the Beijing airport for eight hours before the flight leaves to come to Detroit, the 13-hour flight to come to Detroit. So Beijing airport for eight hours. Now, some of you know the air quality in Beijing. So people wear masks and stuff. And even at the airport, you can, you can just you can feel it. You know? So hanging out at the Beijing airport is not, at any airport, it's no fun, but... Definitely not the Beijing airport. 
But anyway, you got to do what you got to do. And so, you know, I did. And I was, they do have free Wi-Fi, so I was able to do some work, you know, while I was there. And I decided I wanted to get a uh, cup of uh, coffee. And there was this coffee shop. And I go to the coffee shop, and the gal doesn't speak English. And so they have pictures of the stuff. And so I just point to one, and she nods. And so she's making that. And I've got some currency that my wife gave me before I left. She said, here's some Chinese currency that you had left over from your last trip. And so I hadn't had occasion to use it. I might as well unload it because this is my last day in China. So I'm going to pay for my cup of coffee. Now, this, this, so one of these bills that I had had 50 on it. Uh, and 50 RMB, their currency, is like $7. And then I had another one. It was like a 20 and that's, you know, a couple bucks. So I've got about nine American, equivalent of nine American dollars here. Surely that will get me whatever the concoction she's making. <clears throat> so when she comes with it, I take this 50 out, which is the equivalent of about $7, I think, and I, and I give it to her. And she looks at it, and she says, uh, shakes her head no. And uh, she says, uh, American. And I'm thinking, you want American? You won't take your own stuff? And uh, so I'm, I'm confused about this. And uh, so I try to give it to her again. <laughs> and then she, and she gets out enough English to say, no, you're wrong. Okay, I'm wrong. And then she pulls out a sign that says, you had, and it's got a visa. So finally I just give her a visa. And she takes the visa and she's paying with it. And I'm looking at this thing, this currency. Why won't she take this? And I realize that this is Israeli currency. My dear wife gave me money that I had acquired for a trip that I thought I was going to take to Israel. She could have given me Monopoly money. She could have given me anything. So I'm trying to give this gal Israeli money, and I'm wondering why she won't take it. And then she comes back with my visa for me to sign it, and I sign it, and I say, Shalom. <laughs> So anyway, always a lot of fun. Hey, do we have that uh, graphic with the uh, thorns and the cross? And the, okay. So lesson five of nine. And we are going through each of the four major items on that graphic, looking at the issues that we face in life and, and how we deal with those issues. And we have had an introductory lesson, the big perspective, how God sees our lives and the circumstances of our lives. And then the next eight lessons that we're in the midst of are going through each of these four items, the heat and the thorns and the cross and the fruit, and two lessons for each of those. And we have seen uh, the heat, and the heat refers to uh, the heat of life, the, the circumstances and the situations that God places us in, allows us in. And our reactions to those circumstances produce the thorns. You see the thorn bush, kind of cactus growing there, and at its root, you've got a heart with a, a negative sign. So a, we bring a bad heart, a sinful heart, sinful responses to the heat of life, and it produces thorns and difficulties for us. And today, we're going to look at the second lesson on on thorns and what that produces in our lives. And then next week, 
we'll look at God's solution, the cross, for two weeks. And then we will see the kind of good fruit that is born because of a changed heart that God, that God gives us. And so today, lesson five, why do you get entangled? And the big question is, what has captured your heart? What cravings, desires, and beliefs rule your heart, producing ungodly reactions? So it's really asking us, why do we, why do we sin? And if you're a, a Christian, then you really can't avoid that question because you still deal with, I still deal with indwelling sin and the temptation to sin and succumbing uh, to sin. It's an ever-present reality with us that if we're Christians, we hate, and therefore we ask ourselves, why do I do this? And so why does a parent get so upset when a child uh, doesn't do some of their chores? Or why does a man or a woman succumb to the sexual overtures of a coworker? Or teenagers become depressed because they're not as popular as they would, would like to be? We ask ourselves the questions, why do we do the things that we do? Seems like it's a simple question with some simple answers, but it's not so simple. Because the task for us is really uh, similar to that of a medical doctor who's trying to examine the cause of the issues that we have so that an appropriate solution can be uh, applied to it. And the solution is only going to be as good as the diagnosis of the problem. So if we fail to diagnose the problem accurately, then we are not going to come up with accurate solutions for it. And the problem is, for us, is we are masters at coming up with solutions that are, that are not real. Because we refuse to deal with the real causes of our thorns, our problems in our lives. Now, I want to talk about some of the ways that we do that, but let's just think about an example couple, Joe and, Joe and Mary. They're married for 22 years. Mary has become increasingly overwhelmed and exhausted, and uh, she has realized early on in their marriage that she married an, an angry man. He didn't exhibit this kind of anger when they uh, were first married or, or when they were dating, but he had an episode of just an outburst of anger when they were on their, their honeymoon. And she thought, well, this is just temporary. Uh, this, will, uh, this will subside. But then a few weeks later, he did the same thing. Uh, she made dinner, and it was not to his liking. It was too cold. And so he, uh, he became loud and nasty. And over 22 years, he has lost it a number of times. They've had kids. And the kids have come to expect that, that he, would, he would lose it from time to time. And as a couple, they've gone to pastors and counselors, and these have uh, diagnosed the problem superficially. Rather than getting to the root of the problem, they've tried solutions that simply mask the problem. If you don't diagnose the real problem, you won't come up with real solutions. So how is it that we fail to diagnose the real problem? Well, one thing we do, like Joe with Mary, is we blame other people. The reason that I have the problems that I have is because I've got the people in my life that I have. And if those people would get it together, if they would change this irritating thing they do or these things that they should do that they fail to do, if they would, if they would change that, then I would be okay. So Joe's, after 22 years, Joe has concluded he married the wrong person. 
Mary's become cool toward him. She avoids talking to him. He never felt like she was 100% in the marriage. She's different in terms of her personality than, than he is. She's spontaneous and she's unorganized. And so he's concluded if Mary would stop avoiding him, if she'd do a better job of keeping the house in order, it'd eliminate his problem with anger. She's tried to do that. She's had people to help her organize the, uh, the housework. But then as she deals with the kids, something's got to give, and it never happens quite to Joe's liking. Uh, their pastor even uh, got her together with some other women in the church to help her try to organize things. Uh, but again, never to Joe's standards, never to Joe's liking. And so Joe even suggested to the pastor, these people aren't helping, get her a different group. And you can see for Joe, it's always about, it's always about Mary. He'll admit that he has his struggles, but it always turns back to, to Mary. And so one of the ways we misdiagnose our problems is by focusing on other people. And this has a long and inglorious history to it. By the way, how could that fly still be living? <laughs> I mean, it is in the teens. I thought flies froze, though. Don't they die? What do they do? I mean, just die, fly. <laughs> I mean, I know it's kind of unkind, you know, but man... But anyway, so it has a long and inglorious history. Going back to Genesis 3, first sin, God confronts Adam, confronts Eve. First thing out of their mouths is blame. It's other people. You know, God you know, talks to Adam. Adam says, the woman you gave me. First thing out of his mouth, the woman you gave me. So this has been going on for a long time. And then to the woman, and the woman's, the first thing out of her mouth is the serpent. And we know who made the serpent. And Adam says, you're the one who gave me uh, the wife. So not only are we blaming other people, we're blaming, we're blaming God about this. And if we, if we use that as our diagnosis, we will not get to the problem. So that's, that's one false way to diagnose other people. Another one is to look at our, our history, our family uh, of origin. Blame our past. I act this way because I grew up in a dysfunctional family. Turns out Joe and Joe and Mary, uh, Joe had been abused as a, as, a, as a boy, physically and sexually, and had never been dealt with. And so he's carrying around this anger with him that comes into all of his relationships, and especially his most intense relationship with, with Mary. He's never dealt with that. And he comes from a family that's loud and confrontational. She comes from a family that just kind of keeps things into... Uh, keeps things to themselves. And so he is constantly looking at her family. You're just like your mother. But refusing to deal with what he's refused to deal with. He compares and contrasts himself with, with her and the way he acts compared to the way her family acts and what she's carried with her into their marriage because of that. So uh, other people or our, our backgrounds. And another false way to diagnose is just, you know, I had a bad day. So the reason I'm acting the way I'm acting is because of what happened to me uh, today. Or a fourth way to misdiagnose is my body made me do it. 
so focused on, on physical issues that are going on rather than spiritual issues that are going on with us. And dear friends, I, mean, I just, want to, just want to lovingly uh, encourage you to be very careful about the therapeutic medical model approach that we have even in Christian circles toward dealing with people's problems. And we call things sickness <clears throat> that the Bible calls sin. And we've got to be very, very careful about that. And you guys have heard me say this, some of you have heard me say this before, but the way we use the word sickness is quite ambiguous in our society, isn't it? I mean, we will say someone is sick if they have cancer. But then we will say, you know, someone is, is sick if they've got a behavioral problem. But we get angry with them about the behavioral problem. Now, do you get angry with somebody for having cancer? But, but we say things with, with anger. I mean, just real indignation. You're sick. You need help. Get some help. Well, maybe sick's not the right word if you're angry with the person about it. So we, we, for behavioral problems in our therapeutic society, we're using words in ambiguous and, frankly, unhelpful ways in this medical model. Now, let me issue a word of caution with all of that. We say that false, incomplete diagnoses of our problems include things like blaming other people, uh, family origin, the, the day that I had, things that are going on physically with me. Those are four ways that we tend to do that, and they're four inadequate ways. But I've got to issue this, this word of caution. It's not that those things are unimportant. It's not that we ignore those things. It's not that those things don't influence us. But notice, there's a big difference between influence and determination. These things influence us, but they are not determinative. They're not dispositive as to how I have to respond in those situations. And so I can still uh, see them for what they are. Uh, I can understand the struggle that I have with those. We can be compassionate toward a brother or a sister or anyone who's, who's got things in their background that they struggle with, who's got physical issues that they're struggling with. But what we cannot do is say, that's the ultimate cause of why I behave the way I behave. It inf it's an influence, but not, but not a cause. C.S. Lewis said this, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery. We ought to hate them. But Christianity does want us to hate, does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves. That is, don't just hate the stuff that's happened to you. Hate the stuff that's going on in you as well. And so these are inadequate solutions. We have to distinguish between the occasion for sin and the cause for sin. The occasion for sin may indeed be another person. It may indeed be what happened today. It may indeed be because of stuff I'm struggling with in, uh, from, my, from my background. But there's an important distinction to make between occasion and cause. And it's important to acknowledge that some of the so-called solutions that we come up with may be wise to help us deal with a difficulty, but also recognize they're not ultimate solutions. Now, for example, 
Uh, let's suppose a guy has a, a drinking problem. I've had occasion to counsel people over the years. The guy's got a drinking problem. So when do you drink? Where do you drink? Who do you drink with? And one of the things that I will say is, don't go there. Don't hang out with those people. <laughs> you know, don't drive in that direction when you're coming home. Don't go next by that bar. That's a, that's a solution in quotes. It's a wise thing to do. And so I counsel someone to do that. But I have no illusions that that's the ultimate solution. Because even though you get away from those people in that bar, there's lots of other people who drink and there are a lot more bars, right? So we're still going to have to get to a root problem. So addressing those occasions and dealing with uh, some of those in the immediate, uh, to alleviate the immediate pain that's going on for someone can be a very wise thing for us to do. But don't mistake that for an ultimate solution. So that brings us to the question, what's your biggest problem? Is your biggest problem somebody outside of you? Is your biggest problem your history? Is your biggest problem physical? Is your biggest problem what happens on a particular day? What is your, your biggest problem? And how you answer that is going to affect the solution you come up with, and it's also going to affect how important Christ is to the solution. Think about this. If my problem is something external to me, I don't need Christ. The reason you need Christ is because your problem is internal and He's the Redeemer. And He takes care of the inside job, the inside problem. So this is serious because, one, it won't get to an ultimate solution if you don't diagnose it properly, and it's serious because it will, it will denigrate the necessity of Christ and, and the gospel. If you place it external then fix what's external, and voila, we're fixed. But if it's something internal, now what are you going to do? If it's something, something spiritual that's the ultimate problem. So when we rightly identify the source of our problem, we're on our way to a solution that celebrates the grace that is in Jesus. But we have to first acknowledge that the problem ultimately is us. It's inside us, deep in our hearts. And so how do you react to that? Are you angry at that news? Are you disappointed at that news? It's true. It's an accurate diagnosis. And rather than being angry or disappointed, you ought to be delighted that this is indeed the root problem. And now if we can, more importantly, if Christ can deal with that root problem, now I can have some real solutions rather than superficial solutions. That's why on the page that is the fifth lesson, we have some passages that show this very thing, that the problem is inside of us. And notice that we've got Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 through 21 listed there. And as you read that, you see that that's the Ten Commandments. You say, man, how do the, how do the Ten Commandments <laughs> teach that the problem is an inside job in my heart? Well, here's how. The first three of those commandments are, are these. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Third, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse God's name. Those first three commands are all vertical. They all have to do with us and our relationship to God. And this is the way that the Ten Commandments are structured. That what you do with those first three commands will affect what happens with commandments four through ten. If you get the first three right, you get the next seven right. If you don't get the first three right, then you are going to violate commands within the next, within the next seven. Now, how, how is that? We know uh, in the next chapter, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is telling us that really our, our root problem is a worship disorder. That our root problem is that our hearts tend to drift toward worshiping someone or something other than God. And so these first three commands are all about who are you going to worship. And if you get those right, you get the other stuff right on the horizontal level in your relationships with, with people. But if not, nothing else is, is going to be right. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the centrality of worship is, is emphasized. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so this is telling us that the reason we fail to keep commands 4 through 10, those seven commands, is because we fail to keep the first three. If we break those, we'll break the others. And so our thorn responses, our sinful responses, grow out of a heart that has defected to worship someone or something else. And so think about the Israelites to whom the Lord is giving the law in Deuteronomy as they prepare to go into the promised land. Think about their heat. Think about their situation. They've been freed from bondage in Egypt. They've wandered in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. It's been filled with trials, temptations, enemies, suffering, and still, God's greatest concern, now hear this, is not what they had encountered or what they will encounter, but who they will worship. After all they've been through, the first thing He tells them is, you'll have no other gods before me. You'll not misuse my name. You shall not make any, any graven image, any, any idols. His first concern is not about all the stuff they've been through. God's first concern is, what he reminds them of, and that is the necessity of having their worship ordered properly. God knows the greatest battle is going to be for their hearts. And so even after they've seen these miracles of Moses, they've experienced the love of God, they'll still be tempted to worship and treasure other things other than God if they don't get that right. And God knows that they will not remain loyal and faithful to him, even in the promised land, if they don't have him First. And so let's look at how they and we break those next seven commands if we don't get the first three right. 
Remember the Sabbath. At the heart of that command is to honor and obey God in our worship, in our work, and in our rest. So how do commands 1 through 3 affect that? If I, if I break commands 1 through 3, no other gods, no idols, no misuse of, of God's name. Hear this, I worship and serve myself, and I use my time for my own self-interest. I'll make work my God, and I'll define myself through my career. I'll elevate personal peace and comfort above God. And that's all. I'm breaking the, I'm breaking the Sabbath rest command because I've broken the first three commands. Commandment five, honor your father and your mother. That's a call to honor and obey God by respecting those in authority. But when I break the first three commands... I elevate my will and my honor as primary rather than that of someone in authority over me. You shall not murder. It's a call to honor and obey God by loving, serving, and forgiving others. But when commands one through three are broken, I demand to be loved and served by others. When I'm wronged, I demand revenge. And so I murder. You say physical murder included, but you know Jesus says that uh, if you have hatred in your heart, you've committed murder already, right? But why am I breaking that seventh, sixth command? Because I've broken the first three. Do not commit adultery. It's a call to honor and obey God by remaining sexually pure, keeping promises to to others. If I'm I'm married, I've made a, a promise to be faithful to one person. And so this is a call to honor that. But when commands one through three are broken, it's my pleasures that rule, not my commitment to somebody else. Do not steal. It's a call to obey God by freely and joyfully sharing my resources with others. You know, this is, uh, this is in Ephesians chapter 4. Let him who stole steal no more, but work with his hands so that he might have something to give to others who are in need. So this is a call to to use my resources for the benefit of others, but if commands one through three are broken, I want things for myself. The ninth commandment, do not bear false witness. Speak truthfully in ways that build others up. Again, Ephesians 4 says that same thing. But if commands one through three are broken, my words are used to make me look good and you look bad. And the tenth commandment, do not covet. Honor and obey God by rejoicing in the blessings of others. But if commands one through three are broken, I want what you have, and I don't want you to have it. Now, do you guys see? That's the structure of the Ten Commandments. And it all starts with the foundation of those first three. And our biggest problem is a worship disorder. And so now you look at somebody like Joe, this angry guy, with all of the stuff that he's had go on in his life. Now we can have a better understanding of why he's angry because something has replaced ordered worship of the true and living God in Joe's heart. Joe wants his wife to, quote, respect him. And that desire for Mary's respect has become more important to Joe than God. He treasures and desires this so-called respect more than he cherishes the Redeemer. And when he does that, he's broken commands one through three. 
And when he doesn't get the respect he lives for, he breaks the sixth commandment. Not murder. Now, he hasn't physically done her in yet. But from God's perspective, he's, he commits murder in his heart, in his, in his anger. And if she sins against him and she disrespects him, he refuses to forgive her and he holds a grudge. He makes her pay by harassing her, pointing out all her thoughts or all her, all her faults. And so his external circumstances have shaped the way he responds, that's for sure. And as we said earlier, we don't gloss over that. and Gloss over the fact that he's been sinned against greatly. He was sexually abused and otherwise sinned against. But at the same time, if we're really going to help Joe, hear this. He did not become a sinner after he was abused. He was a sinner before that. And now his sinful responses are being played out in the rest of his life. And if he refuses to deal with that, it will continue to follow him and continue to haunt him, and not only him, those with whom uh, God allows him to be in relationship. Joe needs to see that he's never brought these experiences to the Lord in a way that would allow the transforming power of the gospel to heal those broken places in his life. Instead, Joe has decided to handle it himself. And Joe can't handle it. And until he's willing to do that, the real problem will not get fixed. He's promised himself he'll never allow anybody to hurt him again. And so he's in this defensive, self-protecting approach that's created a person that's bent on controlling his world so that he'll never be rejected or never never be hurt again. Now, can you guys see how that plays out with people now? But what's at root with that is a, as I say, a worship disorder. So this is what we sinful people do. We take good things and we allow them to morph, change into idolatrous things. We take good things and we make them ultimate things. A good thing becomes my ultimate goal. I've got to have this. And it becomes the thing now that I worship. So you ask the question, what's wrong with Joe wanting his wife to respect him? And the answer is nothing, all things being equal. It's a good thing, except when it becomes an ultimate thing. It's not sin to desire it, but his pursuit of it shows the deceitfulness of sin and the way our hearts are drawn away to things other than God. And we have listed on your page Romans chapter 1. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. And and that passage is right in the midst, Romans 1, verse 18, down to verse 32, right in the middle of that. That's what you've got. An exchange of worship, a worship disorder. And Romans 1, 18 through 32 are a diagnosis of the human condition, the sinful human condition. And what's at the heart of it, literally at the heart of it, it is this worship disorder. So when God created all things, He pronounced them good. These created things are not sinful, but they become idols when we exalt them to the, to the place that only God should, 
should occupy. So here are some examples. A father wants his child to honor and obey him so that when this child grows up, he'll learn how to handle authority properly. Is that a good thing? Absolutely. Can it easily become an ultimate thing? So much so now that it controls this father's behavior. It leads him to manipulate his son to get him to obey. The father becomes controlling, explodes in anger when the child steps out of line. He becomes depressed by any failure that he sees in his son. Or he becomes self-righteous or proud, condescending toward parents whose children are less obedient than his son. Or what about a young man who longs to find a, a spouse? Or a young woman who wants to find a spouse? Is that a good thing? Sure. Can it become an ultimate thing? Absolutely. And how does it, how does it show up in this, in this person's life? He goes to extremes in his relationships with women. When they ignore him, he becomes depressed and susceptible to sexual temptation. When he does attract a woman's interest, he destroys the relationship by smothering her with too much attention. And all the while, he's just saying, it's just because I love you so much. But really, what he loves is the idea of being loved. Because that's become idolatrous to him. Or a woman who's gifted and successful in her job. God gave work as part of the original creation before the fall. She recognizes that as a good thing from God, a way to use her gifts, experience a sense of dignity in her service to others. But she finds herself increasingly anxious about whether she's doing everything that she needs to do. She starts taking work home, assumes too many responsibilities. Soon she has trouble sleeping. And now she's got all this stuff going on in her life that all stems from making this good thing an ultimate thing. And dear friends, the list of those good things that we make ultimate things is literally limitless. And it all stems from the worship disorder. And then you've got kind of the ultimate passage on this, James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Where do they come from? They come from your desires that battle within you. You want something but don't get it. And so you react in ways that say this is an ultimate thing. I'm willing to kill and to covet because I don't have this thing because it or they have become ultimate to me. So the external action, in this case of fighting and quarreling, all according to James, began with an internal action. Whenever there is an external battle, there has, always, there has already been a loss of an internal battle. So there are always the two battles going on. There's the external one and there's the internal one that we already lost. And now it's become outward so that we fight and we, and we quarrel. You adulterous people, notice verse 4, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy toward God. You say, man, that is pretty heavy, James. And yet he has said that these are our desires and we're desiring someone or something more than we desire to please God. And as a result of that, it becomes outward in fights and quarrels in this case. And what does that really amount to? It amounts to spiritual adultery. That's what he's saying in verse 4. And that's why he says, you adulterous people, don't you know this? That you can't serve two gods. And then verse 5 is going to go on to say, I wanted to put some lines in there for you to take notes, so I, I should have put verse 5 in there. 
But verse 5 says, Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? That's what verse 5 says. Now, what's that got to do with all this? I'll tell you, and then we're done. You've got an internal battle going on in your heart. It determines what happens outwardly. If you diagnose the outward stuff as the cause, then you've missed it. It's an internal battle that becomes outward. That's what the Scripture says over and over again. And then in verse 5 of James chapter 4, understand that God has a dog in that fight in your heart. And the spirit that He caused to live in you envies intensely. Envies, is jealous for your heart. So God is not going to let your heart drift away as an adulterer to someone or something else other than Him. And so His Spirit, jealous for the affections of your heart, is battling within you as well. And that's why, if you're a Christian, you feel this longing, this desire to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and to see that played out in your, externally in your relationships, in your circumstances. It's because the spirit that he's caused to live within you envies intensely. Now, part of that process is God using his word, God using the teaching of his word, God bringing you to a class called From Self-Help to God's Help. For you to, for maybe the first time in some of your lives, to admit that all the stuff I've been pointing at isn't the real problem. It's not ultimately my spouse. It's not ultimately my upbringing. It's, not, it's ultimately inside me. So now, Jesus, I've got to be healed from the inside out, and I can't do that. I can get a new spouse. I can get a new job. I can change all this external stuff. But I can't change myself from the inside out. Only you can do that. So, Lord, I, I now recognize that. I now believe that. So, therefore, I need the right solution. I need the gospel. I need the cross. And that's what the next two weeks are about. We'll be looking at how the Redeemer, through the cross, changes us from the inside out and dethrones our idols and moves our hearts by the spirit that envies intensely toward him and away from those things. We'll start that next week, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity again to think about how we operate, to think about how you made us to worship. We're made to worship. We will worship at every moment of every day. We are worshiping. And we are so. Because you made us that way. Lord, the question is not will we worship. The question is who or what. And you made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so I pray, Lord, for these dear friends. Whatever their struggles are, I pray that you have helped them to come to a point where they say, I've been fo focusing externally. I've been misdiagnosing the problem and therefore have never gotten to the solutions. 
And now, Lord, bringing us to a place of, of understanding, your Spirit illuminating our minds so that we see, ah, it's an inside problem. I've had influences in my life. All of us have the baggage of, of life and living in a fallen world. And they all influence me, but they are not ultimate causes. And so we now recognize that, Lord, and then we open ourselves to your solution, the only solution that can change us from the inside out. And so we look forward, Lord, to seeing in your word how you, the Redeemer, change us by your cross. Help us this week, Lord, to be keen now to the way we react to the circumstances that you've sovereignly placed us in. And help us to begin today and tomorrow, this week, to stop pointing outward. Help us to to recognize those times when we do that in ways that perhaps we never have. And then help us to turn toward you and say, Ah, Lord, I see it. Thank you for showing me this. And I look forward, Lord, to the work that you are going to do in my heart, my redeeming Lord. Go with us this week, we ask you, and bring us back together safely next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.